This episode of the podcast is sponsored anonymously in honor of Dr. Benzion Klebanski, a special and inspiring person whose work in disseminating the history of Lithuanian yeshivas has inspired so many, including this sponsor. May Hashem give him the strength to keep up his important work. If anyone would like to support the podcast, to sponsor an episode, or for any questions, comments, or general feedback, please email me, sfarmchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Sfarm Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Bension Klebanski, who is a lecturer at Efrata College in Yerushalayim. And he's the author of the book, which was just translated to English, called The Golden Age of the, of the Lithuanian Yeshivas, from, published by Indiana University Press. And we'll be discussing the book and, in general, the Lithuanian Yeshivas, especially of the interwar period, and so on. So thank you, Dr. Klebanski, for joining me. Yeah, uh, good day to you, Nache, and uh, to our listeners. Okay, so let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, I was born in uh, Vilna, which was the capital of Soviet Lithuania in those days, uh, to an observant family. My grandfather was Avram Lagleb, and he was the spiritual head of the Vilna Jewish community. And he delivered uh, regular shurim in Shnayes and in Yaakov, we spoke just Yiddish at home, which was unusual in those days and maybe also today. And uh, only when I entered the kindergarten, uh, when I was four or five years old, I quickly absorbed the Lithuanian language and afterwards also the Russian one. Uh, it was, as I mentioned, the Soviet era, a very difficult time for Jews, Judaism. And of course, there were no Jewish schools in Lithuania at that time. I attended a high-level Lithuanian school where studies were also on Saturdays, Shabbat, yeah? And only on the high holidays did I get permission not to come to school in order to attend the prayers in the synagogue. By the way, it was the choral synagogue, Tara Sakoidesh, uh, the only synagogue in Vilna then and to this day. Um, after 13 years of my father's struggle with the KGB, he was privileged to receive a permit to leave Lithuania. It was in 1969, and uh, naturally, we made Aliyah to Earth and Soil. Uh, so here I studied in religious schools, uh, then electronics engineering at Tel Aviv University. I made Bachelor or Master of Science. Uh, and I also served in the IDF for many years. I was a high-ranking officer in the Israeli NSA. And uh, as I knew very well the tremendous impact of the actions of my soldiers and officers, I considered my army services a mission for Army Israel. Uh, after completing my military service, I was offered an excellent job in the Israeli high-tech, but at that time, I started thinking about a change, a turnaround. I was well acquainted with the history of my family and of the Lithuanian Jewry in general, and I knew that uh, very few of these Jews survived the Holocaust, only about 4%, including uh, my parents, who were, and today we can add the word fortunately or miraculously, they were deported to Siberia and the North Pole Circle just a few days before the Nazis entered Lithuania, and therefore I can speak with you today. Um, I saw myself as one of the few sons of survivors, 
and they force it to appropriate to research and write about the history of the destroyed Lithuanian Jewry to which I belong, and which was once the cornerstone of the whole Jewish world. So for this, I turned to studying Jewish history at Tel Aviv University. And very quickly, I began my postgraduate studies and I got my PhD in 2009. And from then on, I'm researching the history of Lithuanian Jewry, writing books, articles, and our listeners may find and freely download all my articles from my site if they want. So this is more or less my background. I, one would say complex in brief. Okay. And, and uh, for your side, I'll put up a link to that. The listeners can find that. I mean, just one question. So you growing up from in, in, in the Soviet uh, Union, I mean, what was that like? Uh, it, it was uh, very difficult. Uh, <laughs> my grandfather was, uh, he kept all the mitzvahs and suke and everything. Also my parents, but they had, they were compelled to work on Shabbos. And also I, as I, uh, as I said, I had to study on Shabbos, but uh, except of it, we, we had Zmiris on Shabbos. We had uh, all the, the, the Sudes on Shabbos, everything uh, as required by the, by the Din, by the Aloha, except of the things that we couldn't uh, do uh, otherwise, other things else. Wow. Wow. Okay. So like you said, you're a real Litvak. Um, so you decided to study Lithuanian, uh, you know, history. So why, I mean, how did you get into studying Lithuanian yeshivas though, per se? And you said you're, you're interested in all Lithuanian Jewry, but why did you decide to study and write on Lithuanian yeshivas, especially as, you know, we'll get to the interwar period, this period between World War I and World War II. Why did you decide to focus on that? Yeah. Uh... Uh, during my PhD studies at Tel Aviv University, I began to think, what, what, is, what will be my, my uh, study work? Uh, and uh, it was clear for me that it would be in the, uh, in the form of religious life, more or less. And then uh, Professor Elfanan Reiner, he offered me two ideas for research work. One was Reb Chaim Grozensky and his time, and the Lithuanian Shivas in the interwar period. So I decided to choose the subject of Lithuanian yeshivas, especially since my father was a student of one of these yeshivas in Lithuania, the Slobodka yeshiva. And uh, so uh, my research was about these yeshivas. And in 2014, I published my research in Hebrew at the Zalman Shazar Center in Jerusalem. And now my new book that you mentioned, issued by the Indiana University Press, is an English version of that Hebrew original. And in this new English version, I added two chapters uh, describing the events during the Second World War from September 1939 to June 1941, the beginning of Operation Barbarossa. And this is a very interesting and meaningful era for the Lithuanian yeshivas as it may explain the miraculous revival of the yeshiva world in our days. So this is a more or less the background of my research. Okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read, before I get to the next question, I just want to read the, the chapters here so listeners can understand a little bit what the book is like about. And then we're obviously going to talk a lot about, you know, things that relate to the book. Um, that you have, you basically it's three parts, and you have consolidation and expansion, the renewal of the yeshiva world and expansion trends in the yeshiva world, which we'll get to now. And then you have part two is aspects of the yeshiva world, economy, studies, leadership, and the Talmudim. Those are a few chapters. 
And then there's the beginning of the end, where you just mentioned return to wandering under Soviet rule. So let's uh, start off in, in this period, in the at the end of World War One. There's the refugee, as you know, you discussed this in the beginning of the book, but discuss it here. You have the refugee refugee crisis, how the yeshivas were affected. They right, they sent away, they moved, they returned, and all the various yeshivas interwar periods. So talk a little, you know, broadly speaking about you know about this. Okay. Uh, so uh, we do, we don't uh, pay attention to it, but the the first world war played a crucial role in the history of the Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands of Jews from the provinces of Kovna, Grodno, Kurulan, Suvalki, and later also for the provinces of Vilna, Minsk, were forced to leave their homes, either because of the Russian deportation orders or because of fear of the approaching German front. And they migrated to the southeastern provinces of the Pale of Settlement, Poltava, Yekaterinoslav. And when the Russian authorities were forced to open the gates, what they called Holy Russia, before the Jews, the refugees also settled in Russian cities. Now, the Shivas were part of this process. At the beginning of the war, an emergency situation arose and many Shiva students returned to their homes. About a third of the yeshivas, let's say 10 yeshivas more or less, especially those whose number of students was not large, were closed. The rest of the yeshivas tried to continue operating until the great deportations in May 1915. When the Jews were forced to leave the Kovna province within three days, and I'm speaking about 120,000 Jews, the heads of the yeshivas and their students also went into exile. So some of them re-emerged in exile, such as the Knesset Besitzchok of Slabotka, headed by Rebo Berleibovich, which settled in Minsk, and the Ponevich kibbutz, led by Rebitzel Rabinovich, which settled in Lutsin in the Vitebsk province, and later in Mariupol, which became famous recently because of the Russian-Ukrainian war. And as the war, front uh, advanced east in July, August 1915, Jews again fled their places, including some of the famous yeshivas, Radin, Novado, Lida. And in 1916, the front warmed up again and Jews again migrated, including the Mir and Volozhin yeshivas. So about uh, 10 yeshivas managed to reestablish themselves in the places of exile. But not all of these yeshivas survived the difficult conditions. Among those that managed to survive, I can mention the two Slobodka yeshivas, the Knesset Israel and the Knesset Besitzchak in Kremenchuk, the Ukraine, of course, the Mir yeshiva in Poltava, the Radin yeshiva in Snovsk, also Ukraine, the Lomzhe yeshiva in Priluki, and the Novadok yeshiva, which settled in Homel, Belarus, and branches of it were opened in uh, several neighborhoods of Kiev and in other cities such as Rostov-on-Don, Berdichev, Zhitomir, and more. So when the exiled Jews were allowed to return after five, six years of exile, and it should be remembered that this was already during the Bolshevik period in Russia and Ukraine, the yeshivas tried to return to their original locations. Most of them succeeded, such as the Knesset, Israel, Yeshiva, Oslobotka, Mir, Radin, Lomze, 
but there were yeshivas that had to settle in new places, such as the Knesset's Besitzchok yeshiva, that couldn't return to Slobodka and settled first in Vilna and finally in Kamenitz. And therefore, it was known as the Kamenitz yeshiva headed by Rebbe Borhuber Leibovich. Other yeshivas of the Novardok type, but were opened in exile, had to find new places for themselves. They didn't have an original uh, towns before the war. Yeah, so they settled in Mezrich, Bialystok, Warsaw in Poland, and even in Dvinsk in Latvia. Uh, I think that it's worthy to quote the Mashgiach of the Knesset Israel Yeshiva of Slobodka, Rebnote Yoshvinke, like quoted him in my book. He considered that these difficult conditions that the yeshiva, his yeshiva underwent in the Ukraine as a significant source of its strength. And indeed, this unique formative period of the First World War strengthened the yeshivas and their students and prepared them for the complex economic, social conditions that would prevail after the war. And some of these yeshivas really became the supporting pillar of the renewed yeshiva world in the interwar period. Okay, right. And and so just to, for the listeners, in this first chapter, you go through yeshiva by yeshiva as you talk about this. Um, and this is really a lot we'll discuss in the first uh, chapter of the book. And the second chapter of the book, you discuss um, expansion trends in the yeshiva. So that, you know, how the yeshivas expand and... Uh, and that I don't know if you want to talk about that, but but something else I think in general question we probably should should discuss here is is you know like you said the book is about the Lithuanian yeshivas. So um, before we get into like general like I mentioned in the beginning part two where you go through various parts of each yeshiva you know like I could call it here economy studies leadership in the Talmudim. What what defines a Lithuanian yeshiva exactly? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good question. <laughs> It seems very simple, yeah, very, uh, yeah, uh, but but it's not so simple. First of all, I would like to point out that in our conversation, we'll be talking about senior yeshivas. That is, yeshivas intended for young men from the age of 17 uh, to marriage in their 20s or 30s. I'll not talk now about preparatory yeshivas, which are aimed for boys aged 12 to 16. This is another story, and uh, maybe... Another time we can talk about it. Um, when we examine the studies in the Lithuanian yeshivas, we may be quite surprised. The studies in most of them followed a uniform and very, very simple pattern. The study year was divided into a winter semester and a summer term. And every day studies were held during two sessions, morning seder and afternoon seder. And uh, when the students would independently delve into a common Talmudic tractate. Besides their independent study, the students would listen to a weekly or even daily lecture from the Rosh Yeshiva, each yeshiva in its own fashion. So with such a simple pattern, what was really unique about the Lithuanian yeshivas? Well, what, what is this? So first I would emphasize but we don't have to disregard this organizational framework as exactly this framework is nowadays accepted in most of the yeshivas, the Haredi, the Zionist ones. So for us, it seems very natural. How can it be in other way? But then it wasn't so common. 
But what is really important, these studies concentrated on abstract theoretical Talmudic topics which lacked concrete application. We call it Torah Lishma, Torah for its own sake, without any orientation towards rendering legal decisions or professional preparation for the rabbinate. It doesn't say that the students didn't get enough theoretical training to become rabbis. No, I don't say it. Of course, the yeshiva gave them the fundamental knowledge and the ability to study aloha. So if one got a suggestion for a rabbinical position, for example, by the way, a very rare event in those days, he could leave the yeshiva, sit at the base medrash for a few months, and then be ready to his oral exams to get a rabbinical ordination for one of the famous rabbis. But generally, the studies were Torah Lishma, Torah for its own sake. But not only that in the Lithuanian yeshiva. Up until the, let's say, the 80s of the 19th century, learning other than in-depth Talmud study was unknown in the world of Lithuanian yeshiva. But from then on, Musar studies were added alongside the Talmud to the curriculum of the yeshivas. So their aim was improvement of the negative character traits of the students. The time formally designated for Musa sessions was very limited, just half an hour a day before the evening services of solitary Musa study from the classic works of Musa, Mesila Sishori, Chobas But in the yeshiva, from then on, there was a new sort of atmosphere of self-examination and the search for character defects. Besides, Musa talks were given by the Musa Mashgichi, Musa supervisors, the new position in those yeshivas. So in the interwar years, the uniqueness of the Lithuanian yeshiva was its curriculum that included two simple uh, subjects, abstract, theoretical, Talmudic topics, which use a, with you, uh, usually a weekly lecture of the Rosh Yeshiva, and the Musa sessions with Musa talks of the Musa Mashgiach. That was the Lithuanian Yeshiva in general. So just to emphasize, so the Yeshivas in Hungary and Poland were, were not like this? No, uh, they were quite different. Uh, the Hungarian Yeshivas concentrated on studies of low codes with the aim of training their students to become rabbis or to be able to derive the right halachic rulings. In the Polish, for example, Chachmei Lublin Yeshiva, the Talmudim studied the Daf Yoimi, a daily page of Talmud, which was the innovation of their founder, Rabbi Meir Shapira. So this method was completely different from the method of study in Lithuanian Yeshivas. Of course, even in Lithuanian Yeshivas, there were some that were exceptional. But we are talking here about the rule, and the rule was Torah Lishma. Okay, so one one final you know general question was: all these yeshivas were in Lithuania, or were there any quote unquote Lithuanian yeshivas out of Lithuania proper? Yeah, it may be even a funny question because at first I thought to make my research on the Lithuania on the yeshivas in Lithuania only, and then. Professor Emanuel Etke said, what are you doing? Most of the yeshivas are in Poland. So what really was the situation? <laughs> uh, the yeshivas were called Lithuanian yeshivas, 
But in the interwar period, this name was only a cultural marker rather than a geopolitical one, as the dwelling place of most of the yeshivas was outside of Lithuania. Uh, Lithuania between the wars was located on the former territory of the Russian Kovna province, you know, the part of the Polish Suvalk province. Only four yeshivas were located there. The Knesset Israel Yeshiva in Slobodka, a suburb of Kovna, the Tels Yeshiva in Tels, the Ponevesh Yeshiva in Ponevesh, and the Kelm Yeshiva in Kelm, which was not exactly a yeshiva like the other ones, but more a training place for Musan Mashgichim, where only a few dozen students studied there, most of them Avrechim, unlike the other between yeshivas, which were usually attended by hundreds of students and all of them unmarried young men. So where were the other Lithuanian yeshivas located, if not in Lithuania? So, and we are speaking about more than 30 yeshivas in the interwar period. So the dwelling place of most of them was, as I mentioned, in Poland. The majority in the Eastern frontier region, known as the Polish Kresy, yeah, the Crescent and the Polish Crescent, but some, especially the Novarok type yeshivas, settled in the old territories of Poland, a territory called now Kongresówka or Congress Poland. So, however, despite of the different geopolitical location, there was no practical difference between the Mir Yeshiva in the Polish Kresy and the Stobotka Yeshiva in Lithuania. I give it as an example, yeah. A student who moved from one of these yeshivas to the other, and there were students who made this move, for example, uh, names like Moshe Higier, Yehuda Frank, Avron Farbstein, did not find the difference between the two in the academic or social aspects. Of course, there were differences in the economic aspect, but most of the students were not aware of it. So we can say that most of the Lithuanian yeshivas, and it's very funny, most of Lithuanian yeshivas were settled, were located in Poland. Yeah, yeah, indeed, very interesting. So you mentioned the, the, the economics of the yeshiva. So we're not going to, I don't think we really, unless you want to go into that, there, there's a chapter in here about the you know, economy, as you call it. But something that you did mention before that I do want to pick up on, you have a whole chapter four in here is dedicated to studies. And you mentioned they had, you know, first seder and second seder, go morning, afternoon seder, and they had, you know, Mustastar. But you, you go through in the book various examples and types of, you know, learning and different uh, examples from various yeshivas. I don't know if there's anything in particular you want to mention a little bit more, maybe a little bit about that people find, might find that interesting? Uh, I would say uh, the, uh, the method of studies in the yeshivas was the method of, the, we call it the Avone, the Avone method. It was the, the system of Chaim uh, Soloveitchik and also of Rabitzele Rabinovich. They, both of them, they, let's say, invented this method it's very more or less similar. They were they studied together, both of them. They studied together in a, in a Brisk, and maybe they had influenced each other. I don't know. But this was the method. Uh, this was the method in the Lithuanian yeshivas. Of course, uh, the the students of those uh, great rabbis of Chaim and of Rabitzele, 
they they weren't uh, they left the yeshivas they were all they were all uh, students uh, and the, the new students they only heard about these methods and they heard it from uh, their uh, rabbis and they tried to uh, uh, to to study the, the Roshe Yeshiva, they, they tried to study according to these methods. And only in 1936, there was published the Chidushe Reb Chaim, and then uh, people began to, uh, students began to be aware to the exact method of uh, uh, the Havone method. Yeah, But uh, before it, it was only Shmuel's, only uh, rumors, uh, what what is the really this matter? Okay, yeah, I, I think I think also one one more uh, uh, one more fact that the son of Rebbeim, Velvoslovetchik, he opened the kibbutz in Brisk, and uh, some students, the best students of Mir and afterwards of also from Radin and other yeshivas, joined him to study the method, the the original method uh, of his father. You, uh, just one thing you mentioned, obviously the briskarov there. What, what is you said? He opened a kibbutz. How would you define the difference between a kibbutz and a yeshiva? Yeah, uh, usually a kibbutz is a study group. We fought a, a rosh yeshiva that uh, delivers uh, weekly or daily um, shiurim. Um, here it was uh, quite different. Uh, it was a kibbutz because it was a small, a small group of. Uh, of students and the uh, rebel uh, told them, I think daily or more or less, uh, uh, almost every day, he told them uh, his studies. So it was like a yeshiva, but it was a very small group. So from one side, you can say that the study group, uh, kibbutz, is a group that doesn't have a formal Rosh Yeshiva. Or from the other side, you can say it's a small group that uh, studies uh, uh, and gets some lessons from uh, uh, Torah authority. Okay, so let's discuss a little bit Rashi Yeshiva, obviously, and, and Mashkichim we'll get to also, because obviously that's many of the famous figures. A lot of the Yeshivas are famous for the Rashi Yeshiva. Obviously, we have a lot of, they're, they're known, we have a lot of Sfarim for them, they're Torah, you know, as you mentioned already, a number of them. So um, that's that's the next, you know, one the chapter in the book where you talk about leadership and you discuss Rashi Yeshiva so, and, and how they were appointed. Um, and we'll get to, I guess, the, the how patrilineal descent kind of emerged and you know, issues from that, etc. Yeah, it's uh, not a simple uh, issue. Usually the Rosh Yeshiva was the man who established his Yeshiva. Naturally, in addition to delivering Talmudic lessons in the Yeshiva, he took care of the economic foundations, donations, student selection, and student support. It was clear to everyone, to the students, donors and to people of the town in which the yeshiva was located, that the yeshiva belonged to its head. It was clear, and he had the right to decide on any matter related to it. Moreover, his standing at the head of the yeshiva was a lifetime position. Yeah, it was clear. And he could have uh, bequeathed it to his successors when he relied or whom he relied on to take care of the continuation of its activity. So now um, he could not guarantee that his sons would have the appropriate skills, Talmudic and managerial. Yeah, it's uh, clear. Um, but 
He had another option for which he could choose his successors. He had usually had daughters. And for them, he could choose suitable grooms from among his hundreds of disciples. And really, this is what usually happened in the Lithuanian yeshivas. The head of the yeshiva would choose the most outstanding student with the best virtues to be the groom for his daughter and his successor when the day came. So this method was acceptable in the Jewish world, in the, in the yeshiva world. And we can find many sons in law as successor of the Rosh Yeshiva. However, some older students would not enter the shurim of the young sons-in-law. This, for example, happened when the Reb Motel Shulman, the son-in-law of Rabbi Isaac Scher, was nominated the Talmud instructor in the Sobotka Yeshiva. And very few students, if at all, entered his first lessons. On the other hand, Rabbi Kostyakovsky became the son-in-law of the Rosh Yeshiva of Lomze, Rabbi Chiel Mordechai Gordon, in 1935, and he was immediately appointed Talmud instructor in the Yeshiva. Everyone came to his lessons. There was a good reason for this, since he had already gained renown as one of the greatest scholars in the Yeshiva world. But all these were small problems in the yeshivas. To enter the, the, the shear of the new son-in-law or not. The real problems that led to sharp controversy were in cases where it was not clear who the heirs were. There was only, there were only two such cases in the interwar period. I wrote about them in my book. One of them was in the Slobodka Yeshiva. We don't have time to describe its complexity. It's a whole chapter in my book. Uh, but in few words, the founder of the Yeshiva was Reb Yeshvinkel, who didn't serve as a Rosh Yeshiva, but as its Musa supervisor. So he appointed a Rosh Yeshiva from outside, and the last and the most known was Reb Moshe Mordechai Epstein. And when time came, it was necessary to decide who would continue to head the yeshiva when it was after the Hebron yeshiva was established and the Moshe Mordechai moved to Hebron. The question was whether it would be the son-in-law of the yeshiva's founder, Rabbi Isaac Sher, or the son-in-law of the Rosh yeshiva. And in this case, Rabbi Yosef Zusmanovich was also called the Yerushalmi because he came from Jerusalem. And then a severe controversy arose and it lasted from, let's say, 1925 to 1937, more than 12 years. In Radin, there was a, a, more or less the same, uh, same case. Why? Because the establisher or the founder of the yeshiva was the Chafetz Chaim. And the Chafetz Chaim didn't serve as a Rosh Yeshiva. He nominated a new Rosh Yeshiva from outside. It was Rabbi Naftali Trop. And Rabbi Naftali was a well-known Rosh Yeshiva with his genius uh, shiurim. And uh, it attracted many, many new students to the Yeshiva. But in, uh, and by the way, uh, 
1928, 29, uh, the yeshiva reached its peak with about 250 students. By the way, uh, I would say in Mir, there were 30, uh, 350 students in that time. But for Rabin, it was a peak, 250 students. It was a great uh, number. But then at the end of 1928, Rabin Aftoli probably suddenly died. And then problems started. Why? Because unlike most yeshivas, where the head of the yeshiva was also the founder and the owner of the yeshiva, in Radin's case, as I said, the owner was the Chofetz Chaim. And he uh, nominated his son-in-law, Mendel Zaks, to be the head of the yeshiva instead of Rabin Aftoli. And he was ready, the Chofetz Chaim was ready, to leave the right for Talmud destruction in the yeshiva to the Trop family. But they demanded not one teaching job, but two jobs. One for the son, Rebbe Avrom Trop, and the other for the son-in-law, Rebbe Yosef Iverson, a Sabotka graduate and a known Eloi. The Chofetz Chaim claimed that he could not meet these demands of the Trop family, and they agreed to only one job, and a compensation. Yeah. And all this caused the quarrel and the Din by Chaim Ozogozensky. And uh, I can summarize that this quarrel was not resolved at the, until the end of the yeshiva in the World War II, when the yeshiva left Radin and migrated to Vilna and to Eishishok, and the quarrel did not stop. So uh, if I summarize, everything could be okay if the founder of the yeshiva was the Rosh Yeshiva. But we had two cases in which the, the situation was different and the founder was not the Rosh Yeshiva. He brought a Rosh Yeshiva from outside and then the problems began. Yeah, okay. And like you said, there's more, obviously, you discuss Radin and Slabotka, and there's other, you know, gen- generally you discuss this whole, you know, Rosh Hashiva position, how they were appointed, and, you know, patrilineal descent and that kind of thing. Um, so the next part uh, of, we mentioned before already, Mashkiach, um, what was the, you know, Mashkiach, and when did they come? You kind of mentioned this, but what became the role of the Mashkiach and the Yeshiva? And then specifically, um, I guess you, the importance of the role of Mashkiach, and specifically, were there some yeshivas where the Mashkiach was even to an extent more famous than the Rosh Hashiva, especially thinking of like Rabbi Rochov, Milvavitz, and Mir, but in general? Yeah. Um, we, as I mentioned, the Musa studies were incorporated into yeshiva curriculum during the period of the, the last decades of the 19th century. It was a period of revolution. And especially at the beginning of the 20th century, um, the students saw in the imposition of Musa teachings a clear attempt at tightening supervision over them and limiting their freedom of action. Therefore, many of them sharply opposed Musa and its representative, the Musa Mashgiach. And they even avoided encountering him as much as possible. But it was in 1905 uh, and uh, in the time of revolution of this period. In the interwar period, revolutionary attitudes no longer had a place in the atmosphere of freedom which spread over Lithuania, Poland, and Latvia. 
and the Musa teachings had ceased to be an accused for quarreling with the Shiva administration. Moreover, in the 20s, 1920s, Musa teachings were introduced into the Lithuanian yeshivas, which had not adopted them previously. So the figure of the Mashgiach became an accepted and leading one in the yeshiva. He knew each one of his charges and his abilities, accomplishments, aspirations, problems, and acted to help them in their difficulties and to direct them in the path what was right in his eyes. His Musar talks, Shmuisen, yeah, which were replete with influential psychological attacks, dealt with the role of the Yeshiva Bochor in the changing surroundings during his studies at Yeshiva and even afterwards. So the deep impression of these talks not only crystallized the students' worldview, but even relied the entire group of the Talmudim around their yeshiva. And as you mentioned, it happened in Mir with Rabbi Rucham talks. It happened in Lomja with Rabbi Moshe Rosenstein's ones, and also many other yeshivas as well. And you say that... Uh, you mentioned that the Mashgiach was in some yeshivas greater than the Rosh Yeshiva. Uh, it's, it may be correct because the Rosh Yeshiva filled various roles in his yeshiva from delivering weekly lectures to providing material support for each of his charges. And often he was forced to dedicate a significant portion of, uh, of his time uh, for uh, problems, uh, uh, economic problems, yeah? So uh, who was the main figure then? It was the Mashgiach, who was like in, uh, the minister of interior of the yeshiva. And uh, when the Rosh Yeshiva had to leave the yeshiva and to go uh, to visits uh, in uh, overseas, to, to fundraise uh, uh, money for his yeshiva, then uh, the one who stayed with the Talmudim was the Bashgiach. And of course, in such cases, he became the most influential figure in the yeshiva. So let's discuss a little bit that. The final uh, thing we'll discuss on the Russian yeshiva and the leaders of the yeshiva, as you say, is... Um... Is the, this fundraising aspect? You know, if it's famous, probably a lot of people are familiar. A lot of the, the Rosh Hashiva used to go, to, especially to America, to fundraise. So, I mean, how 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 common was that? And was the purpose really there to raise money, or was it also to raise awareness in general of the yeshivas? Uh, yes, uh, you know, when the as I mentioned, the yeshivas returned from exile after the First World War, so. Um, what happened with the American Central Relief Committee, they, it sent valuable assistance to each of the returning yeshivas from exile. However, due to structural changes made in the JDC, which was the umbrella organization of the eight committees, and also the changes in the goals of the Central Relief, its support from the American public diminished and therefore, its assistance to the yeshivas diminished as well. At the same time, uh, the economic situation in Europe was also very bad, and the support of the German jury for yeshivas stopped. 
And it should be remembered that the students did not pay tuition fees at the yeshivas. But on the contrary, the yeshivas supported their students to enable, enable them to rent rooms and meals. And uh, so it, uh, yeah, it, it happened that uh, when more and more students joined the yeshivas, then the, the problems, the economic problems of the yeshivas grew more and more. We have to remember where there were almost no restaurants in the yeshivas. And of course, there were no boarding schools. And the Talmudians were required to rent rooms in the houses of the residents. And so uh, the deficits of the yeshivas increased as the number of the students increased in the yeshivas, reaching many, many thousands of dollars. And then the heads of the yeshivas had no other choice but to leave their yeshivas and to go on fundraising trips. According to testimonies, the head of the Mir Yeshiva, for example, was almost forced by students to leave for the United States in 1926 to collect money for the yeshiva in order to save it. So if so, it's not a question of travel to expand the future support network, but rather of an immediate rescue of the yeshivas from an economic collapse. Two, the appearance of the yeshiva heads in the United States and the good impression they made influenced many American activists to think of the idea of sending their sons to study in the yeshivas of these esteemed rabbis. But it was only a byproduct. Really, we can find that until 1927-28, there was no student from America at the Mir Yeshiva, but probably after the visit of Laser Yudo Finkel there. So in 1932, we find over 30 students from America in the Mir Yeshiva. Right, now one, one other thing about America, obviously famously, Shimon Shkop ended up at YU, or I guess then it was Reitz. Um, how did that transpire? What happened there? The situation in the Grodno Yeshiva in the late 20s was very bad, similar to the situation in the other yeshivas. And like many, many yeshiva heads at that time, Rabbi Shimon Shkop also traveled to America. It's worth noting, but he was not young. He was about 69 years old, if I made the, the correct calculation. And this fact may teach us that there were probably no other choices to save the yeshiva, but to travel himself to collect donations for the yeshiva. At the same time, the Rosh Yeshiva at Ritz, Rabbi Shlomo Poliachik passed away. And this was a good opportunity to offer Rabbi Shimon Shkop the position. He thought that through this tenure, he could help his yeshiva financially, but his colleagues in Eastern Europe did not like this idea. And especially Rabbi Yerucham even wrote him a sharp letter in which he demanded that Rabbi Shkop returned to his students in Grodna. And finally, Rabbi Shkop didn't see any other choice but to return to his town and to his yeshiva. 
Okay. So um, let's just, just discuss a little bit, on, moving on to the next part, where you discuss the Talmidim themselves. So, I mean, you've mentioned here, but um, for example, I'm just going to read a little bit like the, the subheaders in the chapter. You, you talk in the chapter, population in yeshivas, how you know, people choosing yeshivas, um, relationship with Talmidim in yeshiva, and you go through, um, you, read, you mentioned that we're talking about the age of the Talmidim. So you mentioned we're talking about a little bit of the older one, but if you want to mention something more about the ages... Um, and, and so on. If you want to just talk a little bit about the, this chapter where you talk about the Talmidim and the yeshivas. Uh, yes, uh, we can speak, for example, about the number of students in the yeshiva. Um, in uh, 1924, for example, uh, there were about 300 students in the Slobodka yeshiva. And uh, it was the biggest number at that time. Uh, after that, immediately because of the uh, the recreation uh, um, uh, rule of the authorities, the yeshiva had to establish a branch in Hebron, and hundred students left the yeshiva and went to Hebron. And only in the beginning of the thirties, the yeshiva, the Slobodka yeshiva, returned uh, to its numbers: two hundred seventy, two hundred. 80 uh, numbers, a uh, uh, number of uh, students in the yeshiva. Um, if we look uh, at that time in the 30s, the Tel's yeshiva, in the Tel's yeshiva, there were more than 300 students. But there was a difference between the Slobodka yeshiva and the Tel's yeshiva, because in the yeshivas, in the Slobodka yeshiva, the students began their studies from the age of 19, because younger ones, 17 to 19, they had a mechina, or Israel yeshiva, headed by Chatzke Berstein. So uh, the Knesset Israel yeshiva was only for older students, 19 years old and older. In the Tels yeshiva, they entered the senior yeshiva already while being 17, 18 years old. So this is one of the uh, of the differences of the yeshivas. If we speak about the between yeshivas in Poland, so Mir, of course, was the biggest yeshiva. Um, in 1935, there were about 400 yeshiva students in the yeshiva. In companies, there were 300 uh, students. Uh, now, uh, what's very interesting is their attraction to foreign students. We find that uh, in the Mir Yeshiva, in the middle of the 30s, there were 25% of the students were from abroad, from overseas, especially from Germany and from the uh, USA. In Tels, 22% of the students were from abroad, especially from Germany. Uh, in comparison, in Slabotka, there were only, I say only, 11% of the students were from abroad. So um, we can say that Mir in the middle of the 30s was the most attractive yeshiva for foreigners. It was the biggest yeshiva uh, from the number of students point of view. And uh, we can say, luckily, or <laughs> I don't know if it's the the, the right word, this was the only yeshiva that survived the Holocaust. And his students, its students, became the 
the founders of the new yeshiva world after the war. So one, one thing that's related to yeshivas is kail. Obviously today there's this proliferation of kail and kail. People you know, have to get married, stay in learning. What was in, in those days? Was the kavna kail? But what was, was kail something that, that occurred then? What was that, what, what was that like? <laughs> this is a, a very interesting question because it may teach us about the difference between those times and our times. Um, in the interwar period, the students, as I mentioned, began their studies in the senior yeshiva at the age of 17, or it's about 19. And these studies continued until their wedding, usually at the age of 25, 6, 27, and even older. So therefore, the study time in the senior yeshiva was about 10 years. And after the marriage, the young man would look for suitable employment to support his family. Only those who excelled in the yeshiva world saw the rabbinical positions as their goal in life and tried to be accepted to a kollel. However, at that time, there were only two kollels in Lithuania the Kovna Slobodka Korel, which operated next to the Slobodka Yeshiva and was the most famous Korel in the world. By the way, I guess you didn't know that, but my grandfather, after whom I am named, was the Menahel of uh, this Korel and the right-hand man of Rabbi Vrom Duber Shapira, who, the Rov of Kovna, who served as the president of the Korel. And uh, the number of the Avrechim in this Korel were about 20. The second Korel in Lithuania was Korel Arabonim in Tels, which operated next to the Tels Yeshiva and had 12 to 14 Avrechim. In Poland, there were also very few Korels. The Mir and the Otvots Korel, the Korel Kochim in Radin with 10, 12 students. In Vilna, in Kamenitz, just seven students, Avrechim, yeah? And in the Novaro Korel in Greece with 10 in our days, the situation is quite, quite different. And there are a lot of callers. When every yeshiva graduate after his marriage joins a callal, or most of the yeshiva graduates. The reason for the multiplicity of callers in our time compared to their minority in the interwar period is the age of marriage. Today, the guys get married in their early 20s, and therefore, their period of study in a senior yeshiva is very short, few years. So, their Talmudic educational completion, they are already doing in the college itself. In the interwar period, there was no need for such Talmudic educational completion. Interesting. Okay, so just um, an, a general question. I mean, you discuss in your book a lot of different yeshivas. You mentioned a lot of yeshivas here, but what are from the more, you know, most or more, everyone, I don't want to, you know, stick any words, but any, something like that, most, more influential yeshivas of the period? Uh, yeah, it's a very difficult question because uh, you may look at this issue from the several aspects, geography, size of the yeshiva, the source of the students, the attraction for foreign students, the position of the graduates in Eastern Europe and overseas. 
Uh, I would say it's my opinion. Yeah, it's my opinion that in Lithuania the most influential yeshiva was the Slabotka yeshiva. Its graduates uh, are in all the Jewish world, all the religious Jewish world. We can find them in the in very in many positions, rabbinical positions. Not now, yeah, but uh, years ago. In uh, Poland, the most influential influential one was the. I think, uh, of course, I can say the Mir Yeshiva. Yeah, it, it had uh, the biggest number of Talmudim. It was uh, the most attractive one for uh, foreign, foreign students. And uh, it survived after the war. Uh, so many of its graduates uh, established new Yeshivas. So we can say that this Yeshiva, the Mir Yeshiva, was the, the most influential, even in in the last decades, uh, 40, 50 years ago, yeah, it was the most influential one. And what, what about an, uh, an unknown yeshiva from this period? Obviously, there are many small ones, but there are, there are you know, some that maybe you mentioned already even on this episode, but what's something that's more unknown? <laughs> this is a difficult question because each of the yeshivas has its own importance. I am reminded of a quote from one of the heads of the preparatory yeshivas, the Ibya yeshiva, yeah, not far from Vilna, who wrote to the Vada yeshivas in Vilna that his graduate students do not want to move to the senior yeshivas uh, of uh, Kobrin and Slonim to where they were uh, directed, yeah, because um, they, they don't like these yeshivas. And he suggested sending them to the sixth class of the Baranochi Yeshiva, which was considered a preparatory class. Yeah, in contrast, the graduates of the Rovna Preparatory Yeshiva wanted only one senior yeshiva, Slonim. Yeah, the, and you remember that the previous ones didn't want not Kobrin and not Slonim. And this one, only Slonim. So it's very, very difficult to define yeshivas as more or less important because each student had his own opinion about the importance of the yeshivas. For example, one of the Israeli government's ministers, the health minister, Lezer Shostak, from the time of Menachem Begin's government, he wasn't a, a religious uh, man, maybe an observant, yeah, I don't know, uh, but uh, he, he didn't go with a kippah. He studied at a Koretz yeshiva and appreciated very much. I also consider this yeshiva of great importance and I write about it in my book. And uh, since I'm sure that only few of our listeners have heard of this yeshiva, it's worth mentioning it uh, in a few minutes. We have uh, two or three minutes. So uh, uh, we must uh, speak about the Talmudic studies in the Ukrainian Volin province in the Pale of Settlement in the 19th century which was concentrated in Batei Midrash and Hasidic Shtiblach, at most, uh, uh, most of the jury and in uh, Volin was Hasidic. So Volin scholars tended towards halachic rulings rather than to a Lithuanian yeshiva style of textual analysis. But then the Askala, the Enlightenment worldview began to penetrate Volin at the end of the 19th century and its influence on Volin's Torah world increased in strength. 
and the local Hasidic population began to recognize the capability of the yeshivas to serve as a shield against this attack on religious life and was therefore more willing to accept such yeshivas. And really, the first significant program was the initiative of a graduate of the Voloshin Yeshiva, Rabbi Yoel Shorin. He founded in a town, Berezhnitsa, in 1897 yeshiva, and two years later, he transferred it to Zvin. Today, it's called Novogrod Volinsky in Ukraine. Um, and he considered it as an influential focus point for restoring the spirit of Torah to Volin. Rabbi Shorin grew among Lubavitch, Hasid in Poltava, and in Volozhin, he was called, known as the Eloy of Poltava. And he was well acquainted with the Hasidic mentality. Therefore, he chose to preserve in his yeshiva, at least symbolically, the Volin style of study, and included in the daily program of his yeshiva, learning of halachi rulings, unlike the accepted course of study in the regular Lithuanian yeshivas. Local Hasidic groups appreciated his program and chose to send their sons to the Zvili yeshiva. And in the course of time, the yeshiva expanded and an impressive building was constructed along with the courtyard and the large garden. But this growth was halted in the First World War. While the yeshiva continued to carry on undisturbed during the fighting, when the Bolsheviks took over Ukrainian Volin, a severe change was also felt in the Izvil. The new Bolshevik authorities began to make troubles uh, to the yeshiva. And uh, the Rabbi, Shurin, Rabbi Shurin decided that the only choice he had is to leave Izvil and to move to a nearby Polish uh, town, uh, which was called uh, Koretz. Yeah. And from then on, uh, the yeshiva uh, acted in this, in this town. Uh, even in this new location in Poland, it stood out among its Lithuanian counterparts with its emphasis on halachic rulings. In addition to the usual session dedicated to Talmud, or Orachayim, as well as probably other sections of the Shulchan Aruch, were part of its curriculum, a direct result of the yeshiva settling in the heart of a Hasidic area. In an attempt to assimilate into this environment, the yeshiva apparently even adopted the Hasidic rite of prayer, but didn't show any obvious signs of accepting Hasidism. Moreover, the yeshiva adapted itself to its Lithuanian counterparts by studying Musar and appointing a Musar Mashgiach, Rebbe Pesach Plotnik. Now, Zvid Koretz was the first senior yeshiva in Volin, and in its footsteps, in this Hasidic area, other Lithuanian yeshivas were founded in the interwar period, yeshiva in Ostrog, in Rovne, and Novadok yeshivas in Ludmir and in Lutsk. So if I summarize this uh, peculiar yeshiva or unknown yeshiva, so the Zvir Koretz yeshiva was thus a pioneer in the revolution that the Lithuanian yeshiva world brought 
about in Hasidic volume, a revolution that expressed itself in the 30s, 1930s by five senior yeshivas and the respectable chain of preparatory yeshivas in this Hasidic area. And uh, I think that this was an outstanding sign of the change of attitude regarding Lithuanian yeshivas that took place among the Hasidic Jews in Volin. And therefore, I attribute such importance to the pioneer yeshiva of Zvid Koretz. Fascinating. Are there any uh, known or famous figures that uh, learned or studied in this yeshiva? As I mentioned, uh, Rezo Shostak, who was a minister in the, um, in, the in this uh, in our Israeli government, um, I know of some other uh, graduates, but uh, not of the rabbinical uh, uh, rabbinical sphere. Okay, interesting. Now, um, the the end of this book, like I said, originally this your book was published in Hebrew as Kitzur Chalamish by Marka Zalmashazar. Um, but the this volume of the book you said you added in the in the beginning of the end return to wandering with uh, World War II and then as you the last chapters under Soviet rule. So what you know what did you add now to this English you know basically what are those chapters talk about that you added to this English uh, translation? Uh, yes, uh, I think that uh, except of the fact that uh, this area this era it was uh, so fascinating interesting. I know very sad. Yeah, we we know we know the end of this era. We know that most of the students were massacred in pits in the small towns of Lithuania by Lithuanians, by the local Lithuanians. Yeah, we know the this end. But all this story of uh, wandering from Poland of about eighteen yeshivas to Vilna and afterwards they scattered in the Lithuanian towns. It's a fascinating. Phenomenal. And uh, at the time of the Soviets, there was a possibility for the refugees and also for the yeshiva refugees to get exit permits and to leave Lithuania through Soviet Russia and through Japan and then to America or to Shanghai, yeah, it depends. Uh, but not all of them use this opportunity. The only yeshiva we know is the Mir yeshiva, but most, almost most of its students, except of a group of 30 students that uh, studied at the town, the townlet of Fat, not far from Kidan, uh, they stayed in, uh, in Lithuania, but most of the yeshiva students, they had, uh, the, they got the permits to leave and in spite of the great risks that they are, uh, um, they are uh, giving their uh, their uh, papers to the uh, Soviet government, and who knows what can happen? And they will be sent to Siberia, and will be uh, sent to uh, who, who knows where. They took the risk, and they were they survived. Yeah, they were. Uh, they, they survived, and after that, they know we know the, the end of this story. But uh, in uh, my book, I bring a table, and in this table, I have all the wandering yeshivas and what happened 
to their heads. And uh, we see there that most of the heads of the yeshivas, although we didn't let their students to work on these exit permits, they uh, made efforts to get these permits for themselves, for their families, and they left Lithuania in the last minute. I, of course, in, the, in this book, I tried to explain it, what, what they had in their heads, what, what was the reason that they did it. And by the way, it wasn't uh, uh, so, uh, the same thing happened also with the Zionist uh, political uh, movements, the heads of these movements also uh, got permission to uh, and uh, permits to leave Lithuania, and they left their uh, members of the uh, of the movements to stay in Lithuania. And we know their uh, their end that they were sent to Siberia or they were massacred in the pits in the Lithuania. So uh, I think that uh, this is a, a topic that is not discussed, not discussed in. Uh, in uh, maybe in academic uh, works, yes, but not in uh, quasi-academic uh, works. It, uh, it will never appear there. Uh, and when one of the writers uh, of these such works mentioned that Rabbi Aaron Kotler left, the, left his yeshiva and left Lithuania for America, he wrote it in such a complex way that no one can understand what really happened uh, in this case. So I think this is my innovation to, so, uh, to, to show what really happened. And it is very sad. I must say very, very sad. It was very difficult for me to write this, uh, this chapter, but we, had to, we have to know the truth, yeah. And I don't blame them. Don't, don't understand what they blame the Rosh Yeshiva. They couldn't even imagine in their worst dreams that, that what will happen to their students. It was impossible to, to dream about it. No one thought about it, not the Rosh Yeshiva, not anyone else in the world, except of course of the Nazis themselves, yeah? Uh, no one could imagine that such a thing can happen to the Jews. And I'm sure the Rosh Yeshiva would have loved to get all of the Tamidim out. I'm sure it's just something that wasn't possible uh, at the time. Um, so you mentioned something there that we should maybe pick up on a, a drop more. I mean, what, what's the current research of the yeshiva? You know, so this is something you're, you're working on, but, you know, between, like you said, academics and versus quasi-academics, non-university you know, trained people researching this. So um, today uh, there are no specific uh, quasi-academic research of yeshivas. Um, there, are, there are still very... Uh, Few, few books on Torah figures who studied in their past in Lithuanian yeshivas. And uh, I consider these books important ones because they are revealing new sources that uh, were in the hands of the families of these Torah figures and uh, were not accessible in the usual archives. And the hands... Uh, we have, uh, we see a great importance of these books also for academic research. Uh, but uh, comparing the difference between the academic researchers and the quasi-academic ones, one may say that they are very similar 
in terms of their scientific apparatus, they have the same footnotes, the same bibliography, but I see as the difference, the main difference is mainly not in what is written in those books, but in what does not appear in these books. I I gave the example of the table of the Roshi Yeshiva in the time of the Second World War, which cannot appear in such a quality academic uh, uh, work. I have also a more an older example. For example, there was a book of uh, edited by Shmuel Kalman Mirsky about the yeshivas that were destroyed in the World War II, and it was published in 1956. One of the chapters of it uh, was about the Slobodka yeshiva, written by the Shiva graduate Ephraim Oshri. Everyone knows Ephraim Oshri. And uh, he included many important details in this important chapter. But one of the major events in the Shiva, the great controversy over its leadership, which I mentioned before, uh, in my book, occupied a prominent place, is not mentioned there at all. Now, could it be that Ephraim Oshi was not aware of this incident? Certainly not. There was no one who did not know about it in that time. Even my late father, who did not tell much about his period in the yeshiva because I was not too interested in this subject in the past, mentioned among the few details the figure of the Yerushalmi and the controversy surrounding him. So surely Oshri, who studied in the same time of my father, knew about this matter. And if you want a more convincing proof, then in Avram Dori's diary about the Slobodka ghetto, he writes what Ephraim Oshri told him during the time of the ghetto in detail about this dispute. If so, the writer Oshri thought it would not be honorable to tell about the controversy in the yeshiva, and he decided to eliminate it completely. And this approach also continues to this day. No one will write that the yeshiva, Volozhin yeshiva, had only 50 students in the interwar period at most, and it was closed, it was uh, almost closed in that time. No one will write about it. It's not nice to tell such a story about the mother of the uh, Lithuanian yeshivas. And so also other other, uh, facts that uh, maybe appear in my book and do not and cannot cannot appear in the quasi-academic works. Right, right, for sure. I mean, one, one thing you you broke up there. Whose whose diary was that that you were quoting from? Avram Tori. Avram Tori. He was one of the the Elterson Rat in the, there in the in the ghetto of Kovna Slobodka. Okay, so uh, first of all, just we're mentioning you know non you know quasi academics, non university trained. I, I want to give just in general a, a thank you to Davi Safir who who helped me with these questions and in general encouraged the me to to do this episode and he writes a lot of excellent uh, research you know articles and uh, on things in the Mishpacha magazine um now 
your sources for this. So how did you go about uh, researching this and what sources did you use? I, I want to mention, you know, just, just, just because I, I want to make sure I mention this, I'll mention this here, that you don't have footnotes, you have endnotes, but the way you put the endnotes there in this book at the end of each chapter. So not like in a general book at the end of the book, they're at the end of each chapter. But uh, in general, the sources, what sources did you use to research this? Yeah, uh... As a matter of fact, my book covers the whole world of Lithuanian yeshivas in the interwar period, about 35 yeshivas in Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia, as I mentioned. And the main source of this very wide research was the collection of Vada yeshivas, which survived World War II, and it, uh, it is now uh, at the Yivo Archives in New York. This collection mainly includes letters, documents from the yeshivas to the central yeshiva committee in Vilna that uh, deal specifically with the economic aspects of those yeshivas. However, an in-depth study of this vast collection of documents taught me a lot not only about the economic aspects, but also about other ones, social, educational, leadership, historical, and the like. Aside from this very important collection, I also used those quasi-research works that I mentioned earlier, uh, very important uh, sources for me, as well as the few studies which are written about this or that yeshiva, most of them concentrated on the time before the interwar period, and they gave me a good background to my research era. Okay, now now you mentioned a couple of other works, like you said. Um, so are there other, what other, obviously there's your book, and I'm going to link to it in the show's notes. I'll link to people can uh, purchase the book. Um, and as well as there is the Hebrew edition from Zalman Shazar, if anyone is interested in that as well. But the new one, like I mentioned, is brand new from Indiana University Press. But what other suggested reading, especially in English, uh, would you recommend? Yeah. So first, uh, there is uh, the English book by Shaul Stamfer, the Lithuanian yeshivas of the 19th century, that describes in detail three Lithuanian yeshivas from their founding until the First World War, Volozhin, Sabotka, and Tels. And it gives a very, very good background of the, this modern, of the modern yeshiva world at all. Um, there is also a book in English by Shai Rosner, Legal Thinking in the Lithuanian Yeshivas, about the method and the works of Rabbi Shimoshkov. It's not a pure history, but still it has strong connections to the Lithuanian Yeshivas. I know there are also articles of uh, Professor Benjamin, Benjamin Brown on Musa, Musa supervisors, and I think that some of them also appear in English. Uh, unfortunately, there is a, an important book uh, in Hebrew, meanwhile in Hebrew, by Shlomo Tikuchinsky about the history of the Slobodka Yeshiva in Eastern Europe until its move to Hebron in 1924-25 and then to Jerusalem. Another book is Memoirs of Yeshiva Students, edited by Manuel Atkes and Shlomo Tikuchinsky. Also, unfortunately, meanwhile in Hebrew but mainly concentrates in the last decades of the 19th century and the time before the First World War. These are more or less uh, the main sources uh, that it's valuable to, to read them. 
Okay, I'll try to link to them. So uh, finally, as a final question, what about uh, for yourself, future projects? Are there any other new books now that you're working on, whether in Hebrew or English? <laughs> yeah, the last book uh, has a general attitude, especially examining common processes and only rarely identifying uniqueness of some of the shivas, some quarrels, and some other thing. I think it's time to concentrate on monographs on some of the more interesting yeshivas. As I have the raw material I have in my possession, now it's time to do something with it. And I believe that the readership will find them of great interest. So this is my next goal, the Zrat Hashem. Okay, sounds good. And we're looking forward. And uh, thank you for joining me uh, to discuss the, the book and the topic. It was very interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much.